Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Broadening the Narrative, where I talk to people who are broadening the narrative I was taught. Today's music is Broken Record, featuring Lucy by Micah Bournet and Jasmine Rodriguez. Here at the beginning, I wanted to share this review from Carrie A.H., who wrote one of my favorite weekly listens. Nikki has a brilliant way of elevating and honoring each of her guests and the unique stories they share. It has been enlightening to listen in on these conversations and hear varied perspectives on deep real-life questions. Thank you, Carrie, for this review. Your kind words mean so much. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could rate and review to help others find the show. Engagement with the podcast really does help with visibility so that more people can find these sacred conversations that I've been able to have with such incredible humans. You can find Broadening the Narrative on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'd love to connect with you. I'm your host, Nikki Pappas. I shared about my first job last episode, so I'll keep that going. My second job was working at a local Chick-fil-A, and to this day, I still have stressful dreams where I can't keep up in the drive-thru during times of tension in my life. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm so glad you're here. We're not all called to be prophets, but I do think that we are all invited to prophetic work at some point in our lives to say the things that go up against your communal rules. And will you do that? On today's episode of Broadening the Narrative, I'm joined by writer, speaker, and yoga teacher, Kathy Kong. Kathy is the author of Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent, and How to Speak Up, which we will be discussing. I first heard Kathy on an episode of the podcast, Her with Amina Brown, and I love coming across interviews with her. I'm still in shock that I'm going to interview someone who has shown me through her work how to live an embodied faith. So thank you for joining me for this conversation today, Kathy. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so honored to be here, Nikki. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, to start us off, can you share about yourself and your background? Sure. So I am uh, squarely in my midlife crisis. I keep telling people this. It's been, I've been in my midlife crisis now for a few years. Um, So I uh, live in the north suburbs of Chicago. Um, As of the day of recording this, so this Saturday, my husband and I will celebrate 20 years of marriage. (laughs) Oh, my word. And then um, we've got three kids. 25, 21, and 19. So we're in a very different stage and season of parenting adults. And what that looks like uh, is it's it's so different. It's different than the experience my husband and I had with our own parents. Um, so it's super fun. And then we're living in April of 2021. So that's what's going on. It's been one thing after another. Yeah. Yeah, well, to just jump right in here, what would you say is the narrative you were taught when you were younger about activism? Yeah, so um, you you don't you don't activism it at all. <laughs> um, I and I want to put that within the context of how I grew up. So my parents are immigrants. I came to the U.S. when I was eight months old, and. Um, uh, so the narrative we're often taught about immigrants and assimilation is wanting to become white or become American. I would say probably more on the American side in that assimilation was about survival. And so when you are trying to survive and navigate systems that you are not familiar with and that you did not grow up with, um, using the language that is not your primary language Um, it isn't so much about activism as it is about survival. So that's what I was taught. I was taught how to survive. So I was taught, um, you know, you have to raise your hand in class because you get points on participation, but you don't raise your hand too many times because then you are the kid wanting attention. And, you know, that's apparently not good either. Um, and so I, uh, the messages I, w- I was taught, how do you survive? How do you make it unscathed? Um, which I don't think is such a bad thing, <laughs> um, but it certainly was not within the context of activism. Yeah, that's a really important piece of your story to bring in and even to see um, 
like the model minority myth potentially mm-hmm. also woven into that, which people can definitely go read more about if they don't know about that. But yeah, so that narrative is different from what you believe now. So yes. when did things change for you and how did that come about? Well, a lot of it um, came about really because of my faith as a Christian and understanding and being told, right? The way you live your life is supposed to be a reflection of what you believe and a reflection of the world you think is possible because of Jesus. And I began to think about what that meant outside of the, this is what you don't do as a Christian versus what you do do as a Christian. And so having grown up in the church for a long time, being a Christian really meant you go to church Sometimes you go to church twice, (laughs) you go to Bible studies, you go to youth group, you memorize verses, you have your daily quiet times and you only do them in the morning because that is when apparently everyone meets Jesus. And um, so that is how I learned. That's what I learned was living out my beliefs. But then as I got older um, and as a Christian in college, meeting a group of other Christians and other Asian American Christians who were really thoughtful about their faith and were asking questions about, well, what does it mean to love your neighbor in a dorm? And what does it mean to love your neighbor in a dorm at 3 a.m. on a weekend when it can get really loud and messy and gross and you don't want to live in messy and gross? Like, what does that mean? So, um, how that's shifted is I believe activism is not a dirty word and it is not a word or a way of life that is for, you know, those liberals or those progressives, but it actually is the life that Jesus invites us to live into, which is you live out your beliefs and your belief in a world that can be different, not just for yourself, but for everyone. And in order to do that, you have to be fully engaged. Yeah, I think that's so interesting, right? That for you, it was your fate that led you here. Mm-hmm. And in my context, it was what I was being taught within my Christian white context was what kept me from that for so long. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so, but right. But when I started asking those same questions that you said with the people you met on campus who were serious about their faith, who had similar experiences to you, that that leading you to ask, oh yeah, what does it look like to um, embody this love of Jesus? And for me, I keep coming back to on earth as it is in heaven, on earth as it mm. is in heaven, like, and the creativity and the imagination it takes to not just believe a better world, but put action to creating a better world around us for everyone, like you said. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's just so, I'm like, I missed it for so long. Um, But yeah, I try not to beat myself up too much, right? Like that I can't change the past, but where I am now, I want to, like I'm reading uh, Rachel Ricketts, Do Better, you know, and to just be like, okay, well, where I am now, how do I repair the past and move forward to create that more just and equitable on earth as it is in heaven? Um, But yeah, I'm also curious, I didn't write this question to you, but do you consider yourself an activist um, or do you not use that term for yourself? Um, It's funny you mentioned that. So that actually came up in the, uh, like the finishing of the writing of the book. Mm -hmm. And um, we're trying to come up with like a shorter, tiny bio in how to promote me as an author connected to the book. And my editor was the one who was like, oh, well, writer, speaker, activist. And I was like, huh? Um, And he said, well, but that's what you do. That's, you raise awareness to specific issues and then you put out a call to action and you invite people to join you. You partner with other people to bring about different outcomes. And I thought, oh, is that what an activist is, right? So I think in my mind, I had a different idea of what an activist is. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And when my editor, Elshi, put it in that way, I was like, oh, okay. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm better with that. I, I wouldn't say I feel fully comfortable with that. And I think part of it is still some of the, the baggage I carry from uh, a more uh, conservative Christian background, um, how that's associated with activism and what that looks like. But yeah, yeah, I'm an activist. Yeah, okay. I was just curious because yeah, exactly. I, I have your book right here and I had read, read, yeah. read on the back, like Kathy Kong is a speaker, journalist and activist. And I was yeah. like, oh, I want to like ask her about that and just see what her thoughts are around that. Um, but yes, so obviously I've got your, your book right here and I rated it five stars on Goodreads and I wanted to read the review that I wrote. Um, I had said, I'm so incredibly grateful for Kathy Kong. Radiant love shines through her work, including Raise Your Voice. I have recommended this book to numerous friends and will continue to because it is essential reading for everyone who wants to learn why we stay silent and how to speak up. Kathy Kong demonstrates how to embody what it means to seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly as she uses her gifts to dismantle oppressive systems. So diving right into your book, like why did you write Raise Your Voice and who did you have in mind as you wrote? I had in mind um, myself and others who are like me 10, 20 years before I sat down to write the book. And I wrote the book because even when I sat down to write the proposal for the book and had talked about writing a book, I had to wrestle with the idea of um, coming into a writing project and not being the expert, which is how I see or how I've experienced a lot of books, right? It's, it's the expert on leadership. It's the expert on this or that expert on parenting. And for me, it was feeling like, well, I am certainly not an expert. I'm going to keep making mistakes. So what does that look like? And how do I write about that? But still from a place of some experience and authority. Um, so, you know, we can tell because we're here on video. I'm a Korean American woman. And so the idea of taking up leadership and taking up authority is not necessarily a thing that women in general are taught specifically in the church, right? That is, that it's okay. Not only is it okay, but it's an invitation God may have for us. So I wrote that with women in mind. And I think my primary audience, I thought of all of the women in co of color who I knew and had mentored or had mentored me who had also said similar things in, it took so long to come into a place of owning our own leadership and voice and experiences as something that would benefit all people. Yeah, no, I love that so much. And yeah, like for me in my church context as a woman, like the message I received, but the more that I've come to learn history, mm -hmm. um, like Letty Shoemate, historian Letty Shoemate, she recommended a book called They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South by mm -hmm. Stephanie Jones Rogers. And so it was really fascinating to learn the power that white women have held oh, historically yeah. yes. that I never knew that we had, but mm -hmm. in our bodies, you know, Letty also talked about uh, epigenetically, right? And so it's like, oh, there is still something in me as a woman who is white needing to unpack that. Yes. Um, so for you, like specifically, like not just women, but women of color who have experienced far more silencing than white women, um, honestly. And, but yeah, okay. So you've written your book. And it's so good. Big question. Why do we stay silent? Because we're terrified. <laughs> we're terrified. And we're terrified for good reason, right? Because I think for all of us at some point, we have been silenced and we've gotten the message that it can be risky, it can be dangerous to um, push up against authority. And I think that is what we continue to see in police violence and police brutality and the, the narrative of if you just followed the rules, right? If you just complied. Um, and, and so we are taught to stay silent because if we speak up against authority or the experts, then there's a risk of, there's a risk of harm. 
And then I think even as children, um, there are many different messages we get. Um, I know having been at um, a more dominant culture white church, like kids were supposed to be super quiet in the pews. And I'm like, but they're kids, so they're going to move and they need to be okay with moving. And if they want to dance in the aisles, they should be allowed to dance. Why are we making them sit still? Or if they want to suddenly hum, why are we quite right? So I think there are lots of messages that we internalize from childhood on. Mm -hmm. And really it comes down to we're afraid because we have been punished. We have been silenced. We have been told it's dangerous. And so we're not given the tools to discern mm -hmm. and make decisions otherwise. Yeah, those are really good points, right? That it's, uh, it is actually dangerous for many people. Mm -hmm. um, and then even for those of us who like, I might not put myself into physical danger, but I've seen and experienced the loss of community or mm -hmm. a relationship. So it's like, you know, there's a cost to this, but then, like you said, you're conditioned from childhood that you are to be seen and not heard, right? Um, and yeah, okay, I just have to brag on the church that we found in Hawaii, like we live in South Carolina. We will never probably get to attend this church in person, but <laughs> through, Insta uh, through Instagram, I met the wife and we've been zooming into her husband is the pastor of this church, The Well in Hawaii. And I like... I've never told Pastor David this, but he gives me real Mr. Rogers vibes oh. in like the best way, right? Um, because he can have these conversations with the kids about death or about mm. these things that are big and scary, but accessible, make them accessible and easy to talk about with the kids. And I just love how he makes the kids such an integral part of the service on the Zoom call. And even one Sunday, where he went long with the kids and was like, well, or no, he had done a prayer and he, and it went long. So he was like, well, I'm not going to cut the kids time. I'll just cut our adult time later. Wow. And I was like, what a deferential treatment of yeah, yes. just really honoring children, which is Jesus. It's like yes. Jesus. So sorry to like go on that rabbit trail, but yeah, it's like so often the messages are counter active to what Jesus showed us. Yes. Also, I see behind you, your letter board. I'm speaking yes. <laughs> from our Madam Vice President, Kamala Harris. So yeah, I feel like that just ties in so much too, to like using our voices and the messages that we've gotten and then how, when we speak up, I mean, we saw what happened when she did speak up, right? right. How she was treated, how she was portrayed, that we don't portray other people uh, in those sort of situations. Have you yourself personally been silenced or have people attempted to silence you? Oh, absolutely. Um, so one of the stories I write in the book is about physically being silenced by a colleague in a meeting um, where the colleague leans over and physically you know, covers my mouth. And, um, and I don't, and I, I, I was actually a little reluctant to tell the story and to use that. Um, but again, my great uh, editor um, walked me through just uh, to give people a visual image of what we experience daily, right? And what we do to ourselves. So we don't even need somebody to do that because I think as adults, we learn that message so well through our childhood and our formative years. So, um, so yes, I have been silenced. I have um, made people uncomfortable with the things that I'm observing and would like to see change. Um, I have had uh, threats and you know, horrible things emailed to me. Um, but also in that saying um, to encourage people, <laughs> it's not always a bad thing to have a filter, right? I think it is, a, it, it is an act of discernment and humility and maturity and a constant kind of going back and forth is sometimes not everything I wanna say is necessary. <laughs> I don't know like one part of me is like anything Kathy wants to say she has permission you know 
from all the people. (laughs) (laughs) And, and hopefully though, you know, I, I, I deeply appreciate that. I think we all need, we all need community and friends who will like pull us back and be like, your feelings are totally legitimate mm-hmm. and we acknowledge them, but those words mm-hmm. are not going to help the situation. Mm-hmm. And so I think in that way, it is the, um, there have been times where I have been silenced and it was wise, mm-hmm. people kind of bringing me back from the edge. And other times people have silenced me because they are uncomfortable with what I'm trying to bring up because it will disrupt. Yeah. Yeah. When I read the story, like I had this visceral reaction in my body Mm -hmm. to you being silenced. And, um, but I think you told it so well and handled it with such care. Um, But yeah, I think to write, the, the point you're getting at of sometimes we do need to be silent. Like for myself, I can see that when I'm about to attack someone's humanity or personhood. Yes. yes. Um, oh yeah. Cause that's something else I want to talk to you about. Um, when I was reading some comments, like someone calling someone who had made a racist comment, like a piece of garbage, mm-hmm. like you're a piece of garbage person who needs to da, 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 da. Um, so I don't know, like, I wanted to hear, like, what do you say to that? Like that approach? Yeah, it's so hard. It's so hard because the past couple of years have been, I don't think it has revealed something that is new. I think it's just revealed what has always been there. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I fully admit there are many people I have in my mind called a piece of garbage. Um, and, And yet to your point, there are ways to communicate my anger, my rage, um, my pain around racist comments and racist behavior that still acknowledges the other person's, the perpetrator's humanity. And I will say sometimes that is really, really hard. Um, It is super hard and it is super hard because it's very easy on social media to say things we would never say to people in person. Um, And so that, you know, that's one of the things that I try to keep in mind is that I'm not going to say something, post something that I wouldn't say in private, Mm -hmm. Um, which may not be the best filter for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. Like sometimes I feel like my filter should be a little higher because I am willing to say awful things to awful people because I can be an awful person. Um, But it is hard because I think there is an anger and a deep pain and rage Mm -hmm. um, for people of color, women of color, marginalized communities, where my first reaction is always going to be based out of the dehumanization I've experienced. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make it right, but I also have to do my work in recognizing that's where it's coming from Mm -hmm. and then to correct that. Yeah, yeah. So to even go back to you saying like your friends being able to tell you like what you're feeling is valid. And like I've seen you like the hashtag stay angry and it's like all that, right? Like is completely valid, but then learning how to still honor the humanity of the person on the receiving end mm-hmm. um, when we do need to say something in person or online. And yeah, I love just asking yourself, like, is this something I would say to this person if we were face-to-face? And mm-hmm. if so, how would I, how would I do that? Um, well, I hope this next question makes sense. Um, and it's, it might work, be worded kind of confusingly, but can you talk about the difference between someone who holds a marginalized identity being silenced and someone who holds a privileged identity in a situation just needing to listen? Because mm. like privileged people, and I'm ta- like, I know in, in a certain situation where we were hosting a group of people and we had some friends who uh, two of them were black and one, she was Uh, from the Philippines and wanted them to kind of talk about their experiences around race and 
like, I'll just admit, like, this was when we were very new to this and still very white savior centered and did not handle this situation very well. But, you know, we had talked ahead of time, Stephen and I, that we would, you know, if someone said anything off base, we were going to jump in there and not let the people who were talking to us, our friends, um, take the heat for that. And so this white man in our group did speak up to, uh, raise an argument. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, that's not what we're doing today. Mm -hmm. We're here to listen. Like we're white and we've been like, our voice have been heard for so long. And basically this person went behind our backs to our pastor and communicated in such a way that the pastor came away from the conversation, um, saying that we had silenced someone and we're not at this church anymore, Mm -hmm. um, but that we had silenced someone. Mm -hmm. And so this person, this, this white man who holds a lot of privilege in that position or in that context felt silenced Mm -hmm. when we were saying, um, you just need to listen. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Could you talk about that difference there for someone who's marginalized being silenced versus someone needing to listen? Right. So I think it's, it goes back to a little bit of the, what I was saying about having a filter, right? And I think when you are in a situation where you have um, and can carry multiple privileged identities at one time, right? So like even for myself as a Korean American woman, I'm also college educated. Um, We are in an upper middle class community, right? I carry all of those things into a situation and I recognize my privilege in that, um, is that when a person who is um, in a place of privilege being silenced, the impact to the community is very different. Like you said, that space of privilege means that those opinions and those thoughts have already been spoken, um, put into policy and um, given more authority and space historically versus marginalized identities, people who come into a space with marginalized identities being told that our experiences are not as important as the white privileged man's uh, question, right? And so I think that is what the difference is. It is a power dynamic and it is the value of one over the other. So yes, both people technically are silenced. The impact to those people are different. And I think that is what's so hard in real life situations is that we wanna say it's the same, it's equal, it's not. Mm -hmm. It's the same, but it is the impact is not the same. Yes. Okay. I'm so glad you said that because it puts to words something that I've tried to say with Stephen before in conversations we've had where I'm like, okay, I think the privileged person wants to make it seem like we're operating from a double standard. If we say this, Mm -hmm. you know, if we say, you know, but it's like how you're saying it. Okay. Well, what is the impact going to be of this? And for the privileged person to have to just step back and just listen, the impact is much different than when a marginalized or someone who holds a marginalized identity being actually silenced. So thank you for putting words to that. And yeah, just, yeah, I guess, and the power dynamics, you bringing that up. It's like, once I understood power dynamics, it just changed everything. Cause you're like, oh yeah, whoever's holding the levers of power. Yes. Yeah. That's who's telling the stories. That's whose voices we're hearing. And like you said, for centuries and Um, the voices that have been silenced. We haven't heard those stories. Right. Yeah. Well, I love in your book how you talk a lot about Moses. And I just wanted to ask you, like, what can we learn and apply from the story in the Bible when God commands Moses to take off his sandals as well as God using Moses? Yeah, Moses is one of those, well, I mean, scripture is filled with problematic people, right? So Moses, yes, you know, 10 commandments, the TV show or the, like the big TV show we would watch around Easter time all the time. Um, There's that Moses, but there's also the Moses of like, he murdered someone and ran away and didn't want to be held accountable to his crime. Um, That's also Moses. And I love that if we really study scripture, 
it is just full of pro problematic people. And Moses is one of those who comes from a place of privilege, acts out of that place of privilege in a really strange, violent way, and then runs from accountability. And then even in all of that, God says to Moses, you still have a place in this world here on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and so that moment of Moses being there in this, the burning bush, I'm trying to envision this, right? What is going on? Um, it, it's holy and it's humbling and it's all you have to show your privilege, to put that aside. And still the invitation is greater than what you lose. Um, so I love, I mean, I'm still trying to wrap my head around what would I do if I came across a bush that was on fire, but not burning mm -hmm. <laughs> and hearing a voice saying, take off your shoes. What would I do? I'd probably run away. <laughs> I would probably run away. Um, but I think that's, those are some of the things that we can learn from Moses. And I think that that repeats itself throughout scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So another question that I loved your just authenticity and realness in answering this in your book. Uh, but why do you cringe when people describe you as a prophet? Prophets are really lonely, crabby people. <laughs> um, this is a conversation that I had so many times um, with my uh, former spiritual director, Marilyn Stewart, who um, is now sitting with Jesus and having all sorts of wonderful conversations. Um, and I spent a lot of time, and I am still really uncomfortable with that because the prophets in scripture um, are asked to say and do things that the world and your community think mm -hmm. are ridiculous, not just like inappropriate, ridiculous. And then you often see prophets sitting under trees by themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and if I've learned anything during this pandemic is that while I love my solitude, I miss my friends. And so the act of being obedient to prophetic words can be scary because it can, as you have learned as well, right? Like you lose community, mm -hmm. um, you can lose relationships and none of that is easy. None of that is fun. So that's why that whole like, oh, you're a prophetic <laughs> voice. I'm like, uh, I don't want to be alone. <laughs> Go ahead and roll your eyes. It's gonna take a lifetime of faith to uproot these age-old lies. Call me a broken record. It should be no surprise. Long as my people lesser than equal every day I rise. Lift our voices with a freedom song. Cry for justice with a mighty drum. Pour our love on our Yeah, it's like I just appreciate that realness because yeah, I I described you as a prophetic voice before even reading your book. And so then to read that, I just laughed because I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, that's such an insight into that. It's like I think you said, like, I want people to think I'm warm and fun, right? Yes. Like, and so if yeah, if the prophets end up being like despised and yes. all those things, it's like I don't want to sign up for that. Like I don't want that. You know? No, and I never understood. I think I've I have met people, Christian leaders who say, you know, I I want to be a prophetic voice, and I'm like, you go, you you have at it. Mm -hmm. Have you read the prophets? Like, they're not fun people to be around. <laughs> and so I I do kind of want to to sit in that 
and sit in that invitation when God has that invitation for all of us. And I think at some point, we're not all called to be prophets, but I do think that we are all invited to prophetic work at some point in our lives to say the things that go up against your communal rules. Mm -hmm. And will you do that with the obedience that Moses had? Um, sometimes I haven't because I want to be fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> Prophets yeah. are not fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Again, just, I just appreciate that, that authenticity. Yeah. Well, can you explain why speaking up against injustice doesn't increase the division, but rather it brings the injustice to the forefront as you wrote about? Yeah, so there's a lot of, um, I'll, I'll see things like, well, why are you trying to be divisive? Um, why can't we all just be like united and one in Jesus? And I say, yes, let's do that. But even being one in Christ means recognizing that um, the disciples all came from different parts and they all did different things and had different experiences. And I think that is part of the beauty of um, speaking against injustice is actually more about clarifying and identifying the existing divisions that God invites us to imagine do not need to exist. Mm. And so I don't think that it increases division. I do think it draws more attention to the divisions and the realities that exist. Mm. And if we don't fight against injustice, then those systems continue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, for me and Stephen, we had someone tell us like, I missed the old SMAP, like this would call Stephen his initials, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I miss the old snap and Nikki or mm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, and it's just like, it's, it stings to hear that. And even I'd heard, um, Austin Channing Brown at an, at an event one time around her book, um, black dignity in a world made for whiteness, right? Mm -hmm. Is it, we're still here, black we're dignity still here, yeah. in a world made for whiteness. And she talked about like, this work will change you. Um, mm -hmm. and so it's like, yeah, like in some ways, I see what this person is saying. Like, we're not who we were, but in some ways I'm like, but we're becoming who we were meant to be and who we really are at our yes. cores, you know? Yes. And, um, and I get that it's scary and you don't want people to change and all that um, when it bumps up against the comfortable status quo. But yeah, like just being told, like even things like you're doing the work of the devil. It's like, oh, <laughs> like, I don't want to hear that. Yeah. Um, rather than seeing it as, um, which I think Martin Luther King Jr. even wrote about that in Letter from a Birmingham Jail. It's like this exposing the division that exists mm -hmm. and, um, and that the absence of like, you're wanting this, um, what was it, like a false peace. Yes. The absence of tension rather than this true peace, which is the presence of justice. So to not let that, what people are going to think, like deter from just pushing ahead and, and creating that world that like you talked about at the beginning. Um, well, you kind of already spoke to this a little bit, but in the When You Post It chapter, you were answering several questions that you ask yourself prior to engaging on online controversies that involve calling out specifically white Christians on their racism. So could you walk us through your process, what that looks like for you? Um, so I could open my book and read it. Um, I'm going to I'm just gonna go on the fly here. And what my process often is quickly um, reaching out to my friends and saying, hey, did you see this? <laughs> what are you thinking? What's your reaction? What should our reaction be? How should we respond? Um, and then before doing any responding, it is um, stopping and praying. Mm -hmm. So I know it's hard to see and believe in a time of social media where it has only gotten faster, mm -hmm. right? So like when I started this quote work 20 some years ago, there was no Instagram or Twitter mm -hmm. or Snapchat or all of those things. There was email, there were blogs. 
there was barely Facebook. What's what's a blog? Right. No, <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like um it's like all of the tweets <laughs> strung together in coherent paragraphs put on a single page. That's what a blog is. Um, or it's all of the captions on Instagram put together into paragraphs without pretty pictures with filters and hashtags. And that's what a blog is. And I was just talking about this with my husband too. Like when I kind of entered into this work and this invitation from God, even Facebook was still like, you had to have a, a university or college email to right. access Facebook. And so that is how old I am. And now here we are 2021. So it's hard to tell, but I actually do stop and I pray and I ask people and come up with a plan and think through what are the implications and what might happen and how would we respond to that. Um, but then at the end of the day, it really does deter, it, it depends on, you know, was this a public display of racism? Mm -hmm. um, can this person, I'm always get, being told like, well, why didn't you reach out to this person privately? And I'm like, um, this mega church pastor, actually you can't. Like there's no email, there's no phone number to reach him. And in the specific incident that I'm thinking of, that mega church pastor, I never spoke with personally. I wasn't allowed to. And so in that, I think through not just what it means to call that person out, but what am I inviting that person and that person's followers into, right? So. And that's something I've learned over the years. It used to just be a calling out thing. Now it is, if I write a post and point out this behavior or this post or this racist comment, what am I asking readers to do? What is the do likewise invitation? Um, that I think is part of the key, what I'm asking people to look at when you post it, are you just trying to point and say, this is what the racist thing is? If that's it, I want to invite you into something better, which is, this is what a racist comment looks like. How can you repair that? How can you apologize for that? Um, what does learning look from that space? Um, but it's hard. <laughs> Yeah, no, I love that you have a community of people. So you're not just encountering this racist comment and then going at it alone. Like you have people you can contact and find out like what would be the best course of action together. Um, so I love that. And then, yeah, I, I was thinking and I wrote that part down about when Matthew 18, 15, about going alone, mm -hmm. like when that is leveled against someone, it's always, it, it goes back to that power dynamics and it goes back to you're using this to silence someone. You're mm -hmm. using this verse in a lot of ways, like how the late Rachel Eld Heavens would talk about like a weapon, you mm -hmm. know, um, you're not, yeah. And so that even happened to us too. <laughs> I sent at our yeah. old church, an email about some racist incidents in the church, let's call them like just, just racism. Mm -hmm. And the, um, and then I even said something about, you know, one day, if y'all want to go here with me after we've talked about these things, like I can talk about the sexism encountered because, you know, just yes. thinking, like, to, like there are people within the racism category who are being doubly hurt here, yes. you know? So, um, anyways, the response back to me was, well, have you gone to these people? to address their racism or their sexism. And I literally responded like, I don't think it's wise to send someone who is who has been harmed by something to these people. But it's like from a power and privilege standpoint, you just right. read these verses and think, well, you know, and it's like, I think we need discernment. Like you were talking about, there has to be layers to this and you can't just send someone alone it's not wise to send someone to like me to go tell this person like hey when you said that it was <laughs> it was very racist it was very sexist you know <laughs> I need some backup there and yes. um yeah okay so 
Yeah, would you add anything else for um, advice on practices for raising your voice in the digital world, since that's just where we yeah. are now? Yes, we're definitely there. We're definitely there. I think um, there are lots of lessons to be learned. I think, um, you know, it's the lesson that I remember giving my kids when the digital world was like growing exponentially is what you put out there in social media is there forever. Even if you want to scrub your social media identity and um, one of my kids will post pictures on Instagram and then take them down. And I say, you know, there are ways to like find your history and, um, and thankfully this child is not posting anything that would be detrimental to like a future job or anything, but just that idea of like, you think you can take it back. Um, it's just like words, right? In a conversation where you are hurtful, you can apologize and you can try to repair that, but those that is still there, it's going to linger. So I would say in the virtual world, the digital world, it's the same thing. And then I would add, you know, slow down. Um, slow down. Uh, everything is so immediate. Um, and it's so easy to respond with our thumbs on our phones. And um, sometimes I wish I was back to my non-smartphone where like texting meant you had to hit the <laughs> numbers like four times and three times to get the letter you wanted. Mm -hmm. I think maybe some of that is, is the wisdom is um, there is so much out there. All of us could live in a state of rage mm. and desire for retribution. That is not God's invitation to us as we are seeking out justice. Um, it is not an invitation to sit in a state of rage 24 mm. seven. And so as we're engaging digitally, what does it mean to detox, yeah. maybe not have your phone on you all the time, maybe to turn the internet off if that's what you need to do, but that the digital world is shaped in a way that will always fight for your attention. Yeah. And that may actually turn your eyes away from the actual injustice happening relationally. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's so good. Even to like call back to what you were saying about when you post something, you want to give this invitation um, and mm. call people in. And then it's like what God is inviting us to in right. the work that we do around raising our voices and pointing out injustices. I think this leads really well into these sentences from page 151, where you said, but remember, speaking up is never a question of gaining audience size. It's an act of obedience and faithfulness. So yeah, could you expound on that and how you remain obedient and faithful in a time when I think it can be easy to focus on building a platform at the expense of that obedience or that faithfulness? Yeah, so it's, so, um, it's different. There's, I call it the Christian industrial complex. Mm -hmm. And there is definitely like a Christian celebrity world out there. And, um, and it's only exacerbated by social media and all of that kind of stuff, right? The good and the bad. And from that, I think um, it can feel like you have to be and live out your values and your activism in a certain way so that it is still palatable. Mm -hmm. And not all um, small acts of faithfulness are worthy or suited or suitable for Instagram. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's part of it is I have to remind myself that while I am an author and a speaker, I'm also a neighbor and my friends my close neighborhood friends do not care about how many people follow me on Instagram because even though compared to them, right, I have a larger following, but compared to like the real celebrities, I'm nothing, right? So it's good to have that humility and the reality check of my close friends do not think I am whatever, um, that I think is important. And that um, 
what we put out again on the digital world is not to draw attention to ourselves, but to draw attention to the injustice and how we can change that. What does it look like to be a good neighbor? Um, and it it's hard. I mean, you know, you, you do a podcast, right? And the work you do and you put into the podcast really, you need people to listen, right? You need people to listen to your yeah, podcast. I would like that. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. So like, well, we'll, you'll hit end record and you'll edit and then you'll post it up. And then I will, what we call signal boost, right? So that people will listen. Um, we don't want that and your content to be shaped in hopes of gaining more people, right? And so I think that's what, and why I wrote what I did, which is I think, um, Social media has given a certain kind of power yeah. to everyday people. And I think it is a wonderful thing. It's an amazing thing. Like, I think it's amazing that like you and I, we can be on a podcast. You can create a podcast mm -hmm. and have an audience that trusts you. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's part of it is being faithful to that invitation mm -hmm. and to, um, earn and maintain that trust with the people who listen to you. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting. I actually interviewed Pastor David from Hawaii last night for mm -hmm. um, an episode. And at the end, you know, he asked me how the podcast was going even. And I told him, I was like, I'm glad that I started it now and not three years ago when I first had the idea or two years, whenever it was, because just the place I'm at now is different than then mm -hmm. and the motivation coming into it. And I'm an Enneagram three, right? And so there's that, that I've had to really work through and to just say, you know, I want people to listen, mm -hmm. but what's really important is the connection with someone and holding their stories and seeing someone, especially in this year of the past year of the pandemic, you know, I'm like, it's just a really beautiful, sacred space to hold with people. Yes. It's like, okay, I, I want people to listen, but if not that many do, like, at least I got this and like this time. And yeah, it is just interesting. Cause I have some friends who, you know, they're all like, Oh, Nikki, the social influencer. And I was like, I don't want to be that because <laughs> one, like, it's a lot of pressure to like you, like, I feel like I don't want to be on someone's pedestal because I know yes. I'm going to fail Yes. also. And it's not because I want to evade accountability. It's just because it's a very public way of failing. Yes. And, um, but also like, I don't want to attract the trolls who like, I'm like, I don't like that. And like how you've gotten threats and all that. So I'm like, I'd really, I would like to avoid that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. But yeah. So yeah, I just, I love that though. Right. Like um, even in whatever we're doing, whether it's this, a podcast or um, anything on social media to not be focused on getting more followers, but to mm -hmm. be focused on the people who are listening, being faithful and obedient. And oh, I love that language of being someone that they can trust, um, mm -hmm. being someone that I can trust too. Right. Um, and letting my body know that my body can trust me and yes. all those things is just so much more important. Well, a few questions before our time ends, um, but such a big question that is on so many minds now is about the racism that our former, I hate to say president, but 45, um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> really continues stoking against Asians and Asian Americans. And, you know, and I've heard so many people say he didn't create this, right? right. Again, it gets back to what is being exposed right now and what a platform was given mm -hmm. to you. Um, so yeah, like how has that racism stoked by him impacted your activism? Sure. It's, I mean, it was, my activism was there before 45. And then, and then, you know, then there's like the before 45 and after 45. Um, and I would say uh, he didn't reveal anything that wasn't always there. He gave permission and he gave authority uh, and so when the leader of one of the biggest 
free countries of the world uses racialized language around a virus and laughs about it and says it's no big deal, that gives permission to all of his followers or even people who don't think of themselves as followers, but just trusting him as a leader, an international leader at that, um, uh, that gives permission and validity for their behavior as being okay. And so I think that's what we're seeing. People have said, um, you know, it's why now he's not the president anymore. Well, because he gave permission to it all along. So it wasn't just with COVID, but his behavior all along has allowed more and more people to believe it's fine. This is totally fine. Yeah. And I, I think it's important too to make note of the violence. Um, it's like, what was it 90% of cases are carried out by white people of violence mm -hmm. against Asians and Asian Americans? Yes. Like within the, oh, would it be like AAPI community? Like, is it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's Asian American and Pacific Islander. Correct. Um, and so, yeah, when the media maybe is highlighting more instances where there's a black uh, perpetrator, um, it's like that was only 5% of cases. Right. And so I just think, again, like media being such a powerful tool and the narratives and what is shaping what we think and the divide. And, um, you know, again, to get back to my, you know, the model minority myth and the wedge trying to be driven between communities of color. And so I love um, the what is it? AAPI women lead yes, their page. Yes, um, yes. So I would say like to people to go follow them. Um, and I think that might've been where I saw that data, but yeah. Okay. So thank you for sharing about that and how him being president, just giving permission and what we, what we've seen happen. So in light of all that, Kathy, how do you take care of yourself? Well, um, so it's, I've been having lots of conversations with friends as things are slowly opening up in this phase of the pandemic. Um, a number of my friends and I are fully vaccinated and we're all trying to figure out like what is going to be okay for us now that it's getting nicer outside. We, like my neighborhood friends, none of us have been in each other's homes in more than a year. It is the weirdest thing where you know, sometimes weekly, we would be in each other's houses just hanging out. And so I think in that, um, we're also talking a lot about what bad habits we picked up during COVID. So there was a lot for me, a lot of comfort eating and comfort drinking. And, um, but also realizing in those, in that time, what were the things that I could do to care for myself that have also been built in? So one of those things has been to be outside as much as possible. I'm in the Midwest. It's what, April, what's the date? 21st today as we're recording. It was snowing earlier today. It's sunny, but I think it's still, oh yeah, it's still 41 degrees outside, but it was snowing. I, I got video of it. It looks like one of those filters where like glitter is falling down, but it's not glitter, it's snow. Um, and so what that means is you just really bundle up and you go outside mm -hmm. or um, I sit by the window and, um, and realizing that that was one of the saving graces during pandemic is that we have the privilege and luxury of a home with a wonderful backyard mm -hmm. that for months and months and months, I cared for myself by being outside, sometimes just mm -hmm. rolling on the grass. Um, I teach yoga. Um, and so for me, that's really about connecting my breath and my body and being aware of what's going on physically and how that's um, being impacted and changed and influenced by what's happening around me. Um, I am doing better at sleeping. So, you know, you've got young children, um, you know, any mothers out there, parents out there, but specifically moms, specifically women who, you know, despite our efforts at having everything 50-50 in the home, we still bear the brunt of societal expectations. Um, I am trying to give myself permission to sleep. Mm -hmm. um, and in a world that values me for my productivity, that's really hard to do it without guilt. 
Um, so I'm trying, I, I do better seven hours of sleep, mm-hmm. um, which I can do cause I have no children at home right now, <laughs> but I still feel terribly guilty. So that's one of the things that I do um, for myself. Um, and then, um, as we are able in this pandemic, what are the ways I can connect with my friends? And what are the ways um, to also serve and be a part of the community? So um, I'm a big, like, I know this sounds really weird, but like, I love donating my blood. That is actually a way I care for myself. Um, One, because if you are anemic and you're not watching your iron counts, you can't donate your blood. Like they prick your finger, they test it and they go, mm, you got to come back. Um, and so if I'm not taking care of myself physically, I can't actually do the thing that I love being able to do. Um, so those are some of the ways I take care of myself. Um, I love to read, although I don't know about you. I've, I found reading during COVID was really challenging. Like my attention span seemed to really be impacted because I was like stressed out. Um, And then the other thing that I love to do, I'm just a like craftsy, artsy person. So I have different projects going on at any Mm -hmm. one given time. So um, again, I think giving myself permission to explore and do those things. Oh, what great examples. And then for people to be able to figure out for themselves, like what those things could be for them. And yes, like vitamin D getting outside just Mm -hmm. changes so much for me and then helps me sleep better as well. Um, But then, yeah, I just, I love, yeah, all those things. And the idea of reading, I hadn't even thought about that, but I feel like COVID brain or like the fogginess, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, it has been harder to concentrate while I'm reading, even though I'm trying to read so many books. It's like, yes, at times less pleasurable. Yes. Um, yeah. Which I guess I was reading something about a lot of things are less pleasurable uh, during this COVID fatigue that we're yeah. experiencing. Oh you know? yeah. Like, yeah. Oh. There's an uh, overall numbness that I yeah. think we're going to have to awaken to and, and deal with. Yeah. Yeah. So where can people find you on social media and stay up to date on your work? Yes. So I think the two best spaces are to find me on Instagram and Twitter. And so on both spaces, it's the same handle at Ms. M.S. Kathy Kong, K-A-T-H-Y-K-H-A-N-G. So Instagram, you get like, you know, pictures and rarely do I use a filter. Um, And then Twitter, I'm probably a little like sassier on Twitter, (laughs) but that's also because it's just like, you know, I'm, I'm throwing things out there with my thumbs, but those are the two best places to find me. Awesome. I'll put those in the show notes and yes, people go check out Sassy Kathy, (laughs) Miss Kathy Kong on um, Twitter and on Instagram as well. Yeah. Well, what advice do you have for others who are ready to raise their voices? I say, do it. Um, Find friends who are willing to raise voices together. It's so much easier. And even when it's not easy, it's so much better to do it in the company of good friends who are willing to make mistakes together. Um, And then I would say, um, be ready to learn a lot about yourself and about your community and about God. And some of those are hard lessons, but I would say by and large, um, they have been beautiful lessons that have drawn me closer to Jesus. I love that. I love it so much. Well, what is your hope for your book? Um, I, well, so my hope for my book when it first came out was that it would earn out its um, advance. So I earned out my advance, everybody. Um, (laughs) So that's good. I, I think I would hope that um, it, it is the kind of book that continues at a slow, low heat. (laughs) And that it is something that people can come back to and a book that can just, they can discover at a certain time of their lives where they are wrestling with that question of, is this the thing that I'm supposed to say or do? Um, And that I also hope that it's something that I can continue to learn from. Mm. yes okay so I just think it's funny right the shifting hope for your book from when it first came out versus now but yes like 2018 is that when it came out 
or uh yes yes yeah. I think so, so yeah that people are still reading it because I read it last May um so that would have been May 2020 so yeah, yeah that people are still picking it up and reading it and benefiting greatly from the work you're doing so thank you for this book thank you for your time here and just having this conversation with me I've loved it so much oh thank you so much Nikki I've enjoyed it as well Wasn't that such a powerful conversation? I'm deeply grateful to Kathy for coming onto the podcast and sharing her wisdom with all of us. Also, I misspoke when I named Austin Channing Brown's book. The title is I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. So I wanted to correct that. As a reminder, the music from today's episode was Broken Record, featuring Lucy by Micah Bornet and Jasmine Rodriguez. And the full song will close out the episode. You can stream purchase and download Micah's music at micahbornay.bandcamp.com. If you like what you heard today, share it with a friend. I really think that little by little, person by person, we can broaden the narrative. I also want to thank Jordan Lukens for his help with editing and Daniel Boland for creating the episode graphic. You can access the Broadening the Narrative blog and transcripts for episodes as they become available by visiting broadeningthenarrative.blogspot.com. Come back next week for an episode with Enneagram coach Milton Stewart on using the Enneagram to live from your essence rather than your ego. Grace and peace, friends. Call me a broken record. Go ahead and roll your eyes. It's gonna take a lifetime of faith to uproot these age-old lies. Call me a broken record. It should be no surprise. Long as my people lesser than equal every day I rise Lift our voices with a freedom song Cry for justice with a mighty drum Pour our love on our enemies We will fight this evil with poetry Don't put your hope, don't put your hope, don't put your hope in a man don't lose your hope, don't lose your hope, don't lose your hope to a president. This is more than one Goliath needing to be slain. Don't look for a hero king to rescue us from pain. We need a whole symphony, an honest marching band, to play a truthful melody in this deceptive land. Lift our voices. With a freedom song Cry for justice With a mighty drum Pour our love On our enemies We will fight this evil With poetry Call me a broken record Go ahead and roll your eyes It's gonna take a lifetime of faith To uproot these age-old lies Call me a broken record it should be no surprise Long as my people lesser than equal Every day I rise Lift our voices, Lift our voices With a freedom song Cry for justice With a mighty drum Pour our love On our enemies We will fight this evil With poetry Lift our voices song cry for justice with a mighty drum pour our love on our enemies we will fight this evil with poetry lift our voices with a freedom song cry for justice with a mighty drum pour our love on our enemies we will fight this evil with poetry.